Open your Bibles up to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26. Matthew 26. We'll be looking at verses 26 to 29 this morning. Just continuing our little mini-series on the church that we began a few weeks ago. I have a message uh, this morning with regard to communion. And then uh, next week, we're going to preach on the ordinance of baptism. And uh, you don't want to miss that. And then uh, I'm going to preach a message called the membership mandate. And then I'm going to leave the country for a month. <laughs> I figure it ought to simmer down by then, and then I can safely come back. So if you're not a member, you definitely want to be here uh, next on two weeks, on the 15th. Because when we're done with that, you will be. We hope. <laughs> when uh, someone dies in this country, it's, it's customary uh, to have an obituary written and then read at their funeral service. An obituary is, is a short summation of a person's life, and, and it's, um, it's a way for us to remember them. It, it recounts their life in brief detail, and as it's read... It gives us that opportunity to to reflect and to remember their lives. And I wonder, uh, just as we get started this morning, uh, what if you were to write your own obituary, uh, what would you say? What would you write? How would you want to be remembered? What would you like people to, to recall as they were to sit at your funeral service? How do you want them to remember you? What would you write in your own obituary? Well, Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, wrote, as it were, an obituary in the sense that he took what was a very common and very customary celebration in the life of the nation of Israel, the Passover, and he transformed it into what we know as the Lord's Supper or Communion. And he did so so that his followers throughout the ages, both those disciples there in the upper room that night and all who have followed them up to and including this very present moment, he he did it so that we might remember him, so that we might remember him. The background of the passage this morning that we're going to be looking at here in Matthew chapter 26 occurs in what we're told as an upper room. It's a large room in the second story of a, of a home back there where the disciples were to meet to celebrate the Passover together. It had been previously arranged that they would meet in this upper room, and some scholars think this may have been in the, in the house of the mother of John Mark, and that's certainly a possibility. But it had been previously arranged for them to meet there, and And um, in order that Judas, who by this point was looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus, might not know where they were meeting, Jesus had arranged this room uh, ahead of time, and he had given a sort of a a surreptitious or, or a secretive sign for Peter and John as he had sent them into the city to find the room. He told them to look for a, a guy carrying a water jar, a water jug, basically, and uh, that would be an uncommon thing. And when you find him, follow him 
and say the master uh, you know, needs to use this room. And so that's where they're meeting here in this, in this text. They're meeting in this upper room, and they're doing it uh, somewhat secretively because the uh, Jewish authorities and uh, the Roman officials behind them are looking for the opportunity to arrest Jesus in a way that the crowds will not be uh, come enraged by it and they don't cause a riot in the city. So they're meeting here somewhat secretively. And they're meeting to celebrate the Passover. And this is, uh, this is the oldest of Jewish traditions, of course, right? It, it, it predates the law of Moses, given by God to the nation while in captivity in Egypt. And by now, in the first century, it had become a very common uh, festival or, or, or a celebration that, that, that they would participate in, and it went along a very choreographed kind of format. It's called the Passover Seder, and the, the word Seder just means order of service. And it would go something like this. The, uh, the celebrants here in this upper room, they would recline on their left elbow on, on a cushion around a U-shaped table that was very low to the floor, and it was called a triclinium. And there the, the servants would bring the food, and it would be set before them, and they would partake of this meal together. The ceremony involved a ritual hand washings, it involved a series of set prayers, there were um, four cups of red wine that were part of the celebration. These, uh, these cups of wine were actually diluted with uh, warm water on a two-to-one basis, so the wine had been quite diluted uh, at this point, and, and these four cups uh, uh, punctuated the ceremony, uh, the dinner that they would have together. They would eat a, a roasted lamb and some bitter herbs that had been dipped in salt water and then a, a mixture of chopped apples and nuts that was sort of a sweet kind of mixture. And they would have unleavened bread that was in the form of a large, flat, crisp um, loaf of bread. And all of these things carried symbolic value and were to recount Uh, their time in Egypt and God's deliverance of them. The bread itself, and and throughout the Old Testament, bread serves as a symbol of God's provision for his people. And the wine serves as a symbol of the joy of God's people, in particular the joy they're to receive when Messiah's kingdom is finally established. The feast itself, the, the Passover feast, would be, would be presided over by the father of the household. And uh, throughout the feast, there would be interruption where they would sing uh, what's called the Hallel Psalms. And, and that's a series of, of uh, psalms that would be sung together, kind of chanted, uh, and would be used to recall God's goodness to them. Now here at what we call the Last Supper... In Matthew 26, we have Jesus acting as the father of the household, as it were, or the host of the feast. And so that's kind of the background that's going on behind this text. So beginning in verse 26, it says, While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples, and he said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it. All of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. 
But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now Matthew, in his uh, recording of the events surrounding this, this celebration, he doesn't include everything that Jesus said that night. And in fact, uh, uh, the Apostle Paul uh, tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and, and verses 24 and 25 that, that as part of this, Jesus twice instructs his disciples that they are, that they are to do this in remembrance of him. That there, is a, that there is a point to what's going on here, and the point is that they are to, to remember Jesus. This meal is designed to cause us to remember And later this morning, we're going to take these elements together, and we are going to remember. Remember what? What what do you do when the communion elements are being passed? What do you do? I can remember when I first came to faith in, in the Lord Jesus Christ 35 years ago, and uh, after coming to faith, I was baptized the next week, and then I sort of parachuted into a, a Bible-teaching church, and it wasn't long before the, the first communion celebration came around. And I find myself sitting there along with the crowd and uh, looking around <coughs> pardon me, to um, try to get some cultural clues as to what's going on here. And uh, they kept calling it the Lord's Supper, and I kept thinking that's not much of a supper. Must have all eaten before they got there, right? Um, but I, I watched to see, and uh, what I observed was when the trays were passed, it, people took the little small piece of cracker or bread or whatever it was, and the little cup, and they ate it, and they drank it, and, and, uh, but they were quiet before they did that, and everybody bowed their heads. But I wonder to myself, <coughs> pardon me, what, what, what are they thinking about? What am I supposed to be thinking about? It said on the front of the table, in remembrance of me. And uh, I thought, okay, so this is about remembering, but I'm not really sure what it is I'm supposed to remember. And I wonder, and I, I wonder maybe for you, what what, what's going on when this stuff is being passed? What do you do? I stand up here and I look out and I know that most of you bow your head and you close your eyes, so that's good. But I wonder what you're thinking. Or if you're praying, what, what are you praying? How are you preparing yourself to receive these elements? What is it that we are supposed to do to fulfill the command, do this in remembrance of me. Well, in the passage before us this morning, Jesus gives us three spiritually strengthening activities that we should undertake when we celebrate communion. Three spiritually strengthening activities. So we're going to go through this together, and then we're going to celebrate communion. So the application of this message will come during the time of the celebration of communion, okay? So let's take a look. What are the first 
spiritually strengthening activity. It's in verse 26, and it's simply this. We should recall his sacrifice. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread. (coughs) And after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Now, let's just kind of clear aside some of the the uh, legends that have built up around this. The, um, the breaking of the bread is, is simply the means to distribute it among the disciples. Okay? It's, it's in large loaves. And so the host of the feast needs to break the bread in order to be able to pass it out. It is, uh, <clears throat> it is not a symbol of Christ's broken body on the cross. The bread is not broken Um, uh, to demonstrate that Christ was broken because, in fact, there is not a bone of Christ that was broken. And there's a prophecy in Psalm 36, or Psalm 34, rather, in verse 20, that says just that, not a bone of his will be broken. And the Apostle John, in John 19, and verse 36, is very, very clear to point that out. There's not a bone of Jesus's was broken. Why? Well, because the Passover lamb could not have a broken bone, according to Exodus chapter 12 and verse 46. So since the Passover lamb could not have a broken bone, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world could not have a broken bone either. Okay, so the breaking of the bread is not to symbolize the breaking of his body. What he is saying here is that that this is my body, and Luke 22 adds the additional words, which is given for you. He is merely saying that the bread represents his body given for his people. Remember I told you, in the Old Testament, bread speaks of God's provision. God's provision for his people. And so that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. I am giving myself as a provision for you. And wherever and whenever you eat bread, you are to be reminded that I have given myself for you. So that which is most common to a, to a meal of the ancient world, and, and yea, even to this day, at least if you eat in my home, uh, you will have bread with your meal. And as you eat bread, we are to be reminded, he is saying, that I gave myself for you. Because of his sacrifice, beloved, God pours out his provision for his people. It is because of the sacrifice of Christ, his sacrificial death, that all good things come to us. It is the basis of common grace, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. It is the basis of all of the spiritual blessings that are ours in the heavenly places, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father by virtue of the sacrifice of Christ. So, as you partake of the Lord's Supper together, what is one thing that we are to do? We are to remember that Jesus has made available all of God's blessings to us through his sacrifice. So take a little time and recount his blessings to you. As the elements are being passed... Take a little time to recount his blessings and to thank him for those blessings poured out for you. Secondly, 
we should rejoice in the new covenant. The second spiritually strengthening activity is to rejoice in the new covenant, verses 27 and 28. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Now, the cup that Jesus, that's being referred to here, that Jesus passed, is the third, third of the four cups that commonly made up the Passover celebration. And it is known as the cup of blessing, and actually that's why Paul refers to it in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16. He calls it the cup of blessing. And it, and it comes uh, at sort of the conclusion of the, the eating portion of the meal. And Luke says it that way, Luke 22, verse 20, after they had eaten, Paul says, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five. after supper, this cup is passed. Third of four, and uh, it is passed around the room, and they, and they partake of it. And, and these four cups relate traditionally to, to four promises that Israel believed God had made to them in Exodus chapter 6 and verses 6 and 7. So this would be the third of the, of the four promises that God had, had given to his people. And so in Exodus chapter 6 and in uh, the end of verse 6, it says, Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. That's the third of the promises. And Jesus, as he passes this cup uh, around for them to, to partake of, he's, he's communicating to them that God's redemption is going to be fulfilled in him. He says, This is my blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So what's with the blood stuff? Why blood? Well, it goes back to Sinai and the establishment of the Mosaic Covenant. And there on the, the, in the Mosaic Covenant, as it was established, blood was involved because God says, according to Leviticus 17 and verse 11, that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin. So the blood is essential. Excuse me, the blood is is the representative of the giving of the life. Now, this old covenant established by God with Moses at Sinai was never intended to be the final word. It was never intended to be the the final and permanent and and forever enduring covenant because it was inadequate to, to permanently deal with the sin of the people. It called for a repetitive sacrifice, right? The author of Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 10 and verse 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That means that every year there has to be a new sacrifice, another animal killed, and the blood sprinkled in order to, for God to pass over the sin of the people for another year. And it just sort of continues to postpone it, but it never totally deals with it. So there needs to be a new covenant, a better covenant, a covenant in which it doesn't require an ongoing sacrificial system, a covenant in which one sacrifice, once and for all, deals with sin once and for all. And the prophet Jeremiah 
writing 600 years before this time here in Matthew, speaks of just such a covenant. So I'm going to turn you there to Jeremiah 31, just to be refreshed. Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 31. Now understand, this has always been in the mind of God. This is not that God established the Mosaic Covenant with its animal sacrificial system, kind of watched it for a few centuries, figured, that it, figured out it wasn't really working all that well, and then decided he needed a plan B. This has always been in the mind of God. There would be this temporary Mosaic Covenant to be replaced someday with the new covenant that would be once and for all. Verse 31, Jeremiah 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. Now, there's a lot here to, to talk about, to be sure, but there are two things that I want to lift out as we, as we speak here about this new covenant that Jesus is inaugurating that night when he transforms the, the Passover into what we know as the Lord's Supper. Two key features of this, this long-awaited new covenant. The first is in verse uh, 33, and it is the indwelling spirit. The indwelling spirit. Jeremiah says it here this way. He says, I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. Now, under the old covenant, the law of God was written where? It's on tablets of stone, right? It is external to the people of God. But there is a day coming, the prophet says, in which the, the law of God will no longer be external to them, written on a tablet of stone by which they become condemned, but it will now be written inside of them. It will dwell within them. And the, and the prophet Ezekiel, in, in Ezekiel 36 and 27, speaking on the, on the new covenant as well, adds a little light to it, and he says, I will put my spirit within them. So the law will be written in our heart by the indwelling Spirit of God. It is the Holy Spirit who will put within us both the desire and the, and the strength or power to fulfill the law of God. No longer will it sit to condemn us. It will now reside within us, and we will be a holy people. It is the indwelling Spirit that is one of the key features of this coming new covenant. Secondly, it is full forgiveness. Full forgiveness, verse 34. I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. 
Under the terms of the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, there was this continual reminder of sin. You had to go back over and over again, and you had to bring the sacrificial animal. And every time you did, and every time you you looked into the eyes of that frightened lamb, just before they slit its throat and bled it, you had a vivid reminder of your sin, your iniquity, your transgressions that resulted in the death of this animal. And so you were never, ever free. Never free. You were just constantly reminded that you deserved death. You deserved death, and this innocent animal died in your place. But under the terms of the new covenant, there has been a once-for-all sacrifice. There has been the, the final sacrifice. There has been the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, Right? Second person of the triune God who came and lived and died in order that he might take permanently the punishment for the sin of his people. Or as Isaiah's prophecy says it in, in Isaiah 53 and verse 11, that he would justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. He will justify them. He will, he will place them in a, in a place where there no longer is any guilt attached to them. They are free. They are free. And beloved, that's fantastic. I mean, when we came here this morning, none of us had to, had to carry a lamb across our shoulders, right? We don't, we, didn't, we don't have a slaughterhouse out on the patio. But that wasn't always the way. It wasn't always the way. But for us, our forgiveness is full. Our forgiveness is complete. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You come this morning fully forgiven if you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for you. You are entirely free. You are as holy as you will ever be in the sight of God. He has taken care of everything for you. It's amazing. And Jesus says, on that night, in, his upper, in the upper room there, he is telling his disciples that he is now inaugurating the long-anticipated new covenant. For 600 years... The people of God had had looked forward, reading that prophecy in Jeremiah and others even prior to that. And they have been looking forward to that time when they will be made completely right before God. And Jesus says, tonight's the night. Tonight's the night. It's coming. And it's coming through me. Now the covenant cannot come without without the shedding of blood. Right? Without the shedding of blood, the the covenant cannot come. And so it comes through the shedding of the blood of Christ himself. He not only says to them that I bring the covenant, but, but I bring it through my own blood. I bring it through my own blood. That night he'll die. And when he does, he institutes the new covenant. What do we do when we partake of these elements we rejoice in the fact that the new covenant is no longer future no longer do you have to sit there and say 
Oh, for the day when God will finally deal with sin and with my sin. Oh, for the day when no longer will will guilt hang over me. Oh, for the day when I will be made right before my Creator, knowing that if I were to die even in this moment, I would enter instantly into His presence. Oh, for the day. Well, beloved, the day is here. The day is here. And so, as you partake, enjoy, rejoice that the new covenant has been instituted And by faith in Christ, you are partaker of that one's future joy. Full forgiveness, both now and eternally. And that takes us to our our third. Our third spiritually strengthening activity. And that's to reflect upon the coming kingdom. To reflect upon upon the coming kingdom. Verse 29. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Imagine the scene. They're there in the upper room. Jesus has been talking to them about dying. The the messianic enterprise that showed such promise, uh, the messianic train, as it were, that pulled into Jerusalem the Sunday before, and and the people are are just pouring out in throngs to see this one has now come off the tracks. It's been derailed. Or at least it appears that way. Jesus is is talking here about inaugurating the new covenant in his blood. He's talking about dying. And they're confused. They don't know what to make of it all. And he, he has dismissed Judas prior to this time to go out and do his dirty deed. And Jesus, as it were, is is, uh, keeping his eye on his watch, having calculated approximately how long it would take Judas to get to the the Jewish leadership and for them to round up the Romans in order to get back, in order for the arrest. And and so he's he's saying these things to his disciples, and at the same time he's he's aware that his, his time is very short here. Very short. And so he... He gives them this this solemn promise of a future reunion. He says it's going to be a reunion. He knows that in in the matter of, of hours, this whole thing is going to appear to completely unravel. He's going to be hanging on a Roman cross, his life ebbing out. It's going to appear like all the promise of of Messiah has been somehow dashed. His disciples are going to be scattered. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And so he gives them a promise to reflect on. But I say to you, 
But I say to you. I mean, this is my blood being poured out. But I say to you, there's a reunion coming. There is a reunion coming. And when that reunion comes, we will drink wine together again. The fruit of the vine. We're going to drink together again. We're going to partake of that which, which God has invested with, with such symbolism of joy. That is, we are going to feast and, and drink together. When? When my Father's kingdom comes. When my Father's kingdom comes. I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it, and and notice the word new, with you in my Father's kingdom. What he's he's saying here is, it's not that that when we get to my Father's kingdom, we're, we're going to drink the old wine in the old way. Something Something new. And the, and, the, and the Greek word here speaks of something that is, that is new in quality or, or something that is unknown or, or previously unheard of. We're going to drink it in a new, unheard of way. My Father's kingdom. When this reunion comes, it's going to be unlike anything you have ever experienced. Ever experienced. No human experience will compare to what is in store for you if you are a follower of Christ. Beloved, the the coming of Messiah's kingdom, and we spoke of it earlier here, Micah did as he read Psalm 110, represents the, the culmination of history. And depending on, on where you fall in your relationship to the coming king, it will be a time of incredible joy and celebration or it will be a time of terrible judgment and destruction and undoing. For those who have rejected the coming king, it will be an unprecedented time of disaster and devastation. But for those who who have humbled their knee, who have by faith longed for that coming king, it will be a time of unparalleled, unprecedented, unheard of joy and celebration. The prophets are unanimous in speaking of this coming kingdom. For example, Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 25 and verse 6 says the following On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples a banquet of aged wine the best of meats the finest of wines I can't help but uh, think about John's gospel right Jesus' first miracle recorded in John's gospel was turning water into what? Into wine. And do you remember what, the, what the, uh, the steward of the feast says? He says, oh, this is amazing. Because normally at, at a wedding, you, you serve the best wine first while people's taste buds can still you know, tell the difference. And it's later when they've 
celebrate it a while. That you, you bring out the cheaper stuff. But you, you have saved the best for last. And, and it's not like you just created a, a few jugs or a couple of bottles. You took water jars filled with tens of gallons of water and turned them into the very finest of wines. Why did Jesus do that? He felt sorry for the bridegroom? No. No, he gave, a, he gave a sign. In fact, John said, this is the first of the signs that he did. Because he did this so that they would know this is the king. And in the presence of the king, we experience the, the finest of luxuries. We enjoy life as it was designed and made to be. On that mountain, in that day, there is going to be an incredible feast. An incredible feast. And by the way, this is not just speaking symbolically. Bring your fork and knife. Bring your fork and knife. This is, a, this is going to be a meat eater special. Luke chapter 13, verse 29, speaking of that coming day. People will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. They'll recline at table in the kingdom of God. Luke 22, beginning in verse 28, Jesus says to to the twelve here, you are those who have stood by me in my trials, and just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Beloved, reflect on this coming kingdom. Reflect upon that amazing reality. In this life, and I don't care what your economic situation, in this life you are a pauper compared to what it will be in Messiah's kingdom. A time of unprecedented prosperity, a a time of, of amazing joy, a time when our great enemy, sin and death, will have been conquered finally and permanently. As we partake of these elements together, we should reflect on that reality. We should reflect on that reality. This is, this is but a reminder. There is a feast coming. And your place has been reserved at the table if you have given yourself to Christ. Jesus assures his disciples here with a, with a very solemn promise that a future joy awaits them. A joy so new, a, a joy so different, it's unlike anything they have ever experienced. Unlike anything you have ever experienced. In a few minutes here, we will partake together. What should I do? 
As they're being passed, what do we do? We recall his sacrifice. We recall his sacrifice and all the attendant blessings that flow to us because he has given himself to us. We rejoice in the new covenant that our, that our sin has been fully and finally dealt with, that our guilt has been lifted and removed, and that we are free in Christ. And we reflect upon the reality that this life is not all there is. There is something coming that is beyond our wildest dreams. May these truths from this passage enable us to prepare ourselves to take communion today. Maybe in a way that we've never been prepared before. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. All of history coalesces around him. He is the event. His incarnation, his his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension to your right hand, and his future return to establish his kingdom. All this and more. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who resides within us and has sealed us for this day of redemption. Describing upon our hearts the law of God. Granting us both desire and ability to live in a way that is pleasing to you. We thank you that you have lifted from us the burden of guilt. The continual reminder of our sin. The fear of coming judgment. It has all been removed in Christ. When he said it is finished He had consumed the cup of your wrath to the final drop. None remains for us. And in that we greatly rejoice. And our Father, we look around this world and we see it broken. And we see and hear of wars and rumors of wars and famine and plagues and hatred and evil everywhere. We long for the return of Christ when He will bring righteousness that will cover the earth as the water covers the seas. Our Father, we take of the meal together with anticipation. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, Maranatha. Maranatha.